Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach, and within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Monday Motivation. Today's motivation is talking about the science of pain, and just giving some tips on how to deal with pain, especially if you're someone who is suffering from what's known as chronic pain, which is pain that is lasting over a long period of time. It's not uh, subsiding. That would be acute pain. And I will summarize my findings and my personal involvement with helping people with pain as as well as I can. But this is a massive topic. So if you're interested in it, really look up stuff on this. The research um, in the science of pain is ongoing. It's getting more and more robust as we understand what pain is and what causes pain. But there's still so much we don't understand because it has to do with the brain. And the brain is just this amazing computer that we're finding out information on every day. So first of all, the science of pain is 
the systematic investigation of the phenomenon and biology of pain. So it isn't really a scientific field, but it's an area of research. So there is a lot of research that has been done from our first understandings of pain. And I'm going to read a little bit from an excerpt of a book that I have by A.J. Jacobs, and it's called Drop Dead Healthy. Chronic pain, meaning pain that lasts several months, afflicts 70 million Americans at a cost of $100 billion to the economy. We haven't yet found a suitable treatment for chronic pain. Pills sometimes work, but they tend to be addictive. Reading about pain, I'm reminded once again that I want a refund on my body. Everybody should get one. Send this fleshy bag of bones and muscles back to the factory. I'm not saying the body isn't amazing in many ways. It is. I could marvel for days at the design of a car, of design of the ear, and how it converts puffs of air into a Haydn concerto. But at the same time, the body has many deeply embedded bugs. We're the result of ad hoc evolution and outdated hardware. And pain is one of the cruelest, most primal systems. Pain is so unsubtle. Couldn't evolution have found a better way to alert us that we stubbed our toe? Rather than the sensation that makes us curse the day our mom and dad met at the college cafeteria, what about just having the toe throb gently or turn green or play a little ragtime number? I'd pay attention, I swear. Pain is annoying and unnecessary, like getting an email in all caps. It's like a six-year-old who alerts you every 15 seconds that he wants hungry, hungry hippos for his birthday. Yes, I understand. Message received. Maybe when we were slugs, we needed pain's brutish alarm system to pay attention. But now that we have cerebral cortexes, pain should have been phased out. Not to mention that pain is ridiculously unreliable. Thernstrom describes this problem with a wonderful metaphor. Think of pain as a guard and a watchtower. He rings the bell when he sees enemies. Problem is, the guard is erratic, lazy, easily confused, fearful, a poor multitasker, and sometimes just deluded. Sometimes he'll ring the bell for no reason. Sometimes he keeps ringing the bell long after the enemies have been killed. Pain can erupt with no cause, linger for years, even appear in a phantom limb. And here is one of pain's most sadistic qualities. If you suffer from chronic pain, it, doesn't, it often doesn't ebb as the body heals. It often gets worse. Pain begets pain. The neural pathways become smoother, the message stronger. It's a positive feedback loop that serves only to increase our misery. Okay, so that was his take on it, and it's really accurate. I love the idea of the guard tower and the guard who is not reliable, erratic, maybe even overly indulgent, because this really tells us a lot about pain. And there is, he goes into a lot more of the positive aspects, not just the negative um, this kind of antiquated system in our brain. But it is, it's important to first understand that pain is not a reflex or a signal, but it's, it's a complex experience that is completely tuned by our brain and generated, generated by our brain, meaning that our brain is really expressing pain. And uh, there's a, another great quote, quote I'll read about that expression of, of pain. And it is, pain is an opinion. 
So Rama Chandran wrote this, and I, and I think it's so great. He was, he's a neurologist and scientist. And pain is an opinion. That should tell us something right there, that the opinion sometimes is overstated, and sometimes it becomes rigid, and it morphs into um, another state of being. And that opinion is our body's way of taking a, a reflexive response to an injury and giving us like a signal, you know, like that six-year-old. So we don't have any kind of direct line from the pain receptor to the pain centers in the brain. There's a lot of interaction that happens in our brain centers that are concerned with things like vision and touch that also are feeding back to our motor and touch pathways. And all of that interpretation from the reflex or the place where the pain was originating has to go through the brain center. And then it's, again, an opinion of how the pain is expressed. So in other words, we to some degree experience, we know this, we experience pain differently because we have different brains. Now, if we know that the, the idea of pain is an opinion, can we change the opinion? Can we, can we modify it a little bit? Another person says, Dr. Sean Mackey, who's done um, a lot of research on pain in the brain, chronic pain is not all about the body and it's not all about the brain. It's everything. Target everything, take back your life. So if we are to indeed change our opinion we have to have a multi-pronged approach because we can't just convince our brain that there's no reason for any alarm or any, which is in response, giving us pain because that's a mind thing, right? Brain is separate from mind. Like we can work on our thoughts, but our thoughts don't necessarily change the mechanics of what's happening in the brain. But there are other things that we can do to indeed change that opinion. And that has been shown. Now, first of all, it's really important to declare that pain is real. The perception of pain is real. The experience of pain is real. And so someone experiencing pain should never hear, hey, it's all in your head, because that's like the worst thing to say to somebody. So this is very clearly what I'm trying to convey is a little bit of the research and knowledge of the origin and the experience of pain and what we can do about it. But it is never to undermine anyone's experience because it's real and there's many things that contribute to pain and that opinion far more than just, a, you know, an injury to the tissue or something. There has been, for instance, evidence that fear of pain made people more sore for longer after a workout. So it does there, there can be an anticipatory aspect of pain. There can be a psychological aspect of pain. There can be a psychosomatic aspect, like you might have had this experience before, and it, and it has, you know, knowledge of that experience. So there's a, there are things that can kind of trigger that sense of more pain. But conversely, people may also feel less pain 
than, quote, what they, would sh- what they should feel when there is confidence for any reason, such as not realizing how bad their injury or damage to a tissue is. And they've shown this in many different circumstances from, you know, soldiers who were out in battlefield and had these massive wounds, but just being removed from battlefield, they felt very little pain. And it wasn't just adrenaline, it was getting into a safer area and they didn't think they would be in that much pain, you know, because they didn't have an idea of what had happened. So it's not that um, injury and pain don't necessarily correlate you know, the greater the injury, the greater the pain. There's many other things that contribute to that. Um, what is surprising, and this is in a book that I've read, which is really wonderful, called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's the quote is, what is surprising is how malleable pain signals are, how readily the intensity of a pain signal is changed by the sensations, feelings, and thoughts that coincide with the pain. So the brain is not just this mindless painometer simply measuring unit units of ouchness, right? It's really figuring out how that pain should be interpreted. Now, the, the original idea of pain was that it was kind of this simple signal system. You know, you have a wound that um, the nerves send a message to the brain about that wound, about a damage, and then the it- intensity of the message is directly proportionate to the severity injury. So that was the original idea of pain. And this all goes all the way back to when, you know, French uh, philosopher René Descartes started talking about the simple signaling system, which was the pain. And so it's basically like pain was, was just the brain's interpretation at face value. This injury results in this much pain. A smaller injury results in less pain. And that model was really followed, I mean, and still people believe it all the way up until today, but it really is assuming that the message sent to the brain by a certain kind of nerve will always cause pain. And so people like me, health professionals, there are people in, my, in physical therapy, doctors, who still believe nerve, the nerve is sending the pain and that the signal is pain. And therefore, the nerves are just habitually named pain fibers, and the messages they send are pain messages. And it's kind of this equivalent, going back to what Descartes was saying, there's a signal, and you the signal goes up to the brain, and then the brain sends the pain signal back. But it's that's really an oversimplification, because it's way different than just a one-way um, pain paradigm streak. So the first Part, the first kind of stage of looking at pain um, differently was back in the 1960s. And there was some discoveries, what's called the gate control theory, which showed that other inputs besides just injury to a tissue could uh, cause pain. And that was the first evidence that pain wasn't this completely res- predictable response to some kind of negative um, stimulus or what's noxious stimulus. And so the the messaging to the brain is there is a stimulus that goes to the brain, but then the big part that was left out before is the brain is then interpreting that. And that was, you know, what 
A.J. Jacobs was talking about in the quote that I originally read to you. It's like it's taking in the information and in doing and taking in that information has to decide like, is this, how dangerous is this threat? Because essentially pain is perceived by the brain as a threat. And so the brain has to draw in all the information um, at that moment. And this is based on the, the sensation, but this is also based on our previous um, exposure to a threat in that area, other, other sen- sensory cues, um, cultural influences it's even been shown. So it's really multifactorial how the brain interpret it, tr- interprets and then signals out the pain. And that helps us, though, understand that if it's not just, ouch, I hurt something and I experience pain, but there is some kind of signal that is brought to the brain indicating there's been an injury, and yet that interpretation is getting layered or informed by other, by other information, such as our own history, our own experience, our nervous system. And it's just fascinating to think that the brain can be, I mean, it is the CEO, can be so much in control of the information and how it is perceived and then processed. So your brain makes up its mind about all this information. And then the other part is the brain sends messages downwards, downstreams, into the peripheral nerves. And it can affect their function. And so if you can, there can be a whole debate between the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, and the brain can be bossing everything around. And the brain can tell the nerves like how sensitive or desensitized they, sh- they can be. So when it's been shown when the brain, the central nervous system, is in a more kind of anxious state, our, our you know, nervous system is more anxious, the brain might tend to ask for a kind of more detailed information from the peripheral nerves, which is signaling them to produce more of a response to the stimulus. So that is not a great thing. That means if we're more anxious and the brain is, is wanting more information because it's more anxious or the, we are anxious and the brain is requesting more information, we're getting maybe too much signaling back. However, think about it the opposite way. Um, There's been a lot of research that showed peripheral nerves can either physically or chemically change in response to the brain's request. So not just going up to the brain, but going down. And if we look at the potential for how that can change the experience of pain, it's a two-way street. So we might be able to like, you know, infiltrate some of those messages going down into the peripheral nerves as well. So somebody that's experiencing, say, long-term chronic pain, um, they probably have those messages going up to the brain and the brain going back down to the peripheral nerves and everything's a little overstimulated. So there's possible ways of, again, interrupting some of that 
that that's signaling. But for the most part, you know, most of this systematic modulation is happening in, in the, the brain itself. So really loud messages might be filtered away by the brain, or they might not, or really quieter messages might be overly felt by the brain. So the brain still is at the, is really doing the filtering. And that's based on a lot of other things that are happening in the brain. So over and over again, um, it has been shown that people whose nervous system is heightened, and that could be from anxiety, uh, depression, trauma, post-trauma, you know, unresolved, all the stuff, that that is, you know, those, the brain is, has a lot to filter. And if it has all these different systems being, I don't want to say bogged down with it, um, but really exhausted by just trying to be safe, essentially, is what it's, it's trying to be, um, then the pain messaging might be increased because it's got to go through a lot more. I hope that makes sense. I mean, it's really fascinating to think of that that pain um, is not just that simple track. Like, oh, I I strained my ankle or sprained my ankle and it gets swollen and there's pain and then I'm walking and I'm feeling better uh, because, you know, the, the pain subsides once the tissue has been healing. When in fact, it's not necessarily an issue to the tissue that causes the pain. I'm going to give you an example of my own. When I was pregnant with my daughter and I was in labor, I have a, I would say, a pretty high pain threshold, whatever that means. And that probably means I don't have a high state of stress. I don't have trauma in my background. I don't have these other things in my brain that could really muddy the waters for pain being interpreted and therefore the pain signals might be greater. Uh, and my my safe feeling ha- has always been there. So it's like a, a safe feeling is what your brain and your nervous system craves. And when you're not feeling safe, the pain signals or the interpretation of the pain signals could be greater, right? So anyway, I was in labor and I was in labor for a long time. And as it turns out, uh, my cervix was extra thick, which can be a condition just like something, anything else. And so they eventually had to pry my cervix open. But before I went to that stage, I was in labor for to some degree, not like full, you know, 30 seconds apart um, contractions, but to some degree I was in labor for about two days, which is also fairly common in your first child. And But she just wasn't really going to come out unless I got some intervention. And I remember after that first day and a half and the contractions had gotten really, really strong and then they subsided and then they picked up again. And so this was like going into the you know 26th hour of labor but not all of it was strong, but this was strong. And I just was in my bathroom thinking about going to the bathtub. That didn't feel like a good idea. And I just remember my, I was like a wounded animal. I, I had such fear that I had never felt before. And it was this, I don't know if I can handle this fear. And it was, I think it was coupled because I was tired. 
I'd never been in labor before. I was like, what is going on? Why is there, I'm having these, you know, contractions every 45 seconds, but I don't feel like I'm progressing. And the point is that I just, I just was like, I don't know if I can handle this. And fear was huge. My, I no longer felt safe. I felt anxious. I felt exhausted. And all of that in the nervous system made the pain that I was feeling a hundred times worse. And then I had, so Olivia came out fine, vaginal birth, all that, but they did have to manually open me up a little bit, which was, you know, um, another thing. But Jonah, my second birth, I had been through it already. I was late. It was a very quick labor in comparison. And I just felt really present and capable of handling it. It wasn't that the intensity was any different. It's just that I was, I was on top of it. I felt confident. I felt capable of handling it. And so I guess the point is in those two different experiences, one was I was exhausted and I was, I'd been in pain a long time. And so pain is exhausting. It's exhausting for your nervous system. It's exhausting for the interpretation of it, right? So when someone says they've been in pain a long time, we can never dismiss that because they might've been in a kind of low level of pain a long time that just continued, but their brain, the messaging just amplified because everything else became stressed. They, their threshold of being able to tolerate it, of being calm and of not being, you know, scared, which is the opposite kind of of confidence. So it really is to show you that everyone's experience of pain is going to be different because it's based on so many factors that have nothing to do with you know, sensation in the tissues. So what do we do about that? I mean, I will tell you there has been writings about just what I was speaking about. Um, uh, that It's called the neuromatrix, which is basically everyone's experience. We almost have like our own finger fingerprint pattern of neurological activation. And that's determined by our genetics, our experience, especially trauma, and also what's happening in that immediate moment. So when there are disturbances in this neuromatrix producing pain, the disturbances in the neuromatrix produce pain, and that may occur without any major triggers or even even like without a wound or tissue. It's just that that wiring is such um, in that neuromatrix that pain is generated because there is some kind of detection of threat. So since there is technically no such thing as a pain signal, we have to think we don't really necessarily then have, like, what is the thing that detects pain? And it is multifactorial. It's our brain's interpretation of it. We do have nerves. We do have, the brain does get some information, but it takes in that information in this neuro, in this neuromatrix with all of these other factors in there, like the genetics and the experience. So for me, again, like that example is my genetics and my, maybe my genetics were that birth was not going to be easy for me anyway. 
my experience, I didn't have any major pain or trauma experience, but the immediate situation, I felt very anxious and nervous. Like, is am I going to get out of this alive? Like, is this baby going to come out? And so that was my personal neuromatrix. And so the pain, while it was felt very real to me, it might've been exaggerated or that the, this, the signal that my brain was sending out about the interpretation of pain was greater. It's so f- crazy, isn't it? All right. So what do we do about this? I guess that's the bigger thing is like, if we know we have a brain that might be overstating danger, and there's good reasons to do that. And then there's some that that are overstating danger because there's been um, mixed potential threatening stimulus. Um, But what do we do to help our brain, help our nervous system, especially if you are someone that is dealing with pain? And I think as as a health professional and speaking to any other health professionals out there, I think it's really important that we um, listen to what our patients or clients are telling us and not focus exclusively exclusively on fixing the um, area, the tissue, the problem area, because the pain experience might be the bigger thing. You know, that might be the element that um, we need to address, but not in, in, a, in a direct way either. So it's, how do we do that? We address the nervous system. So I talk a lot about this in my lit yoga because, you know, one thing I'll say to people from young to old who come and they, they tell me their diagnosis, they tell me this, and I often will say, you're going to be okay. And I can't tell you the power in saying that. It's not like I am waving a magic wand, but it's like the nervous system, the brain needs to feel that. We need to help people how it feels to be safe and good. And we need to be that positive um, experience that is not talking about, you know, the problem or the problem area. I always didn't like that. I'll say this as a physical therapist where, you know, people would talk about, oh, it's my bad knee, my bad hip. And then sometimes the therapist would say, you know, which is your bad knee or, and I would always, and, and a lot of therapists don't, you know, they'll say what's your affected knee or, um, but even the languaging around pain, in fact, might, you know, augment it, make it worse. We, we in physical therapy and in other um, medical fields too, we have a pain scale, which I never used. I always disliked, but the insurance companies really want you to use it. And so, it seems so contradictory to me to talk to somebody and for them to label their pain by a number because that even putting that into action is that, you know, the irony is the pain scale is supposed to help us think more rationally and objectively about pain, but it's often just creating um, the opportunity for pain to become the central place you know, actor again. So it's it's a tool, but I don't really like to use it for pain because, and I also, I've talked about this on a previous podcast I I did with my friend Rachel, Yoga Girl. I really try and not, it's, 
even use the word that much. It's not to avoid it, but it's even in saying it, your brain hears it and there's like an interpretation. And if you're someone, if I'm talking to somebody who is in pain and has had a lot of history of talking about their pain, feeling their pain, all of it real, this is not in the head, but that even saying the word can just almost inflict that pain even more because it's just so wrapped up. It's become like the epicenter. And so there's a lot of ways we can help our nervous system maybe reinterpret the sensations that have been interpreted as pain. And perhaps they will still be signaled as that, or they could improve. And so some of the things that I do. One is I try and not focus on that area where the pain is being experienced, but look globally, knowing that the nervous system, which is in charge of movement, which is in charge of breathing, and which is in charge of that pain interpretation needs to be addressed. And if we can find more balance there, often there's more balance in the signaling or the interpretation of pain. And helping anyone remember again how to feel safe, how to feel safe in their body, safe in their movement, safe in their life. And I don't mean safe like not getting mugged. I'm talking about feeling like you can rely on your body. You know, when when um, A.J. Jacobs, again, when, that, when I was reading that quote and he said, I, hey, I just want to turn my body in. You know, it's like, we don't want to turn our body ends. We want we we do know that there is there can be a lot of problems as we get older, but it we don't have to, right? So we need to look at like how we're moving, how we're not moving, how we're sleeping, um, how we're fueling ourselves with our relationships. All of these are part of what influence our nervous system and in, therefore influence our feelings of an experience of pain. So we want to have um, ways of altering that communication um, between the brain and the body and really giving as much power back to the person who is feeling really not empowered because pain can do that to you and have some soothing and comforting um, effect because then Perhaps, and I've seen it happen in in 26 years of PT, I've seen this over and over again, there can be a reframing of that experience of the sensation. So I think number one thing is, if you're experiencing pain, it is real, it is real for you, and it's not in your head, and it is, um, but it also doesn't need to stay the way it is. And there are ways that you can help your brain realize it doesn't need to be so overprotective with the pain signals. And that doesn't mean that it's been, you know, wrong or error, you know, had error in its interpretation, but we need to calm that down um, because it could be, there could be some dysregulation there. Also, working on (laughs) the things that I talk about, posture, movement, breathing, There's been some really interesting studies on what's called bioenergetic breathing, which is also a little bit like what happens in Qigong. It is 
like a controlled hyperventilation. For for lack of a better, I've practiced it before and I've taught it to some people who are in a kind of higher state of anxiety and stress and who really don't know how to release. So it's it's meant to be cathartic. It's meant to be stimulating and almost somewhat overriding of some of the, all of these kind of older wiring of sensation. So it, it's a controlled hyperventilation, but look it up. It's, I, I don't want to imitate it here on a podcast, but there is an emphasis on the inhale, mouth is open, and you can do this for three minutes, five minutes, um, 10 minutes, and it really can kind of almost knock you into an altered state. And that's the idea is that we're trying to kind of knock around the nervous system to get it more balanced. Like it's off kilter and we're trying to get it back on kilter. So that bioenergetic breathing is a, is a really great technique to try. The other thing to try is, you know, on the other scale, more quiet meditative things. But the, the bioenergetic breathing is really for the people who are kind of holding a lot of in, like I, I, I often say constipated in the feelings. And there's just, there's a mal- systematic malfunctioning because the nervous system is just ready for pain at all, in all forms. And some of that is just, I think, restrained or held in emotions. And so the bioenergetic breathing can help you get some of those out. You can do it through sound. You can, you could, you know, breathing, breathing heavily and all that, but it is not meant to be a calming breath. It is definitely a breath to get you like, get stuff out. By the way, just side note, um, in some of the research I, I said in all the different books, um, I saw it as well, that cursing helps with pain, which is funny. Like you stub your toe and you say, think of somebody who would just hold that in. Even saying, ow, or like, you know, whatever word you'd want to say, the experience of pain is less. So there is something about letting out the feelings, letting and venting and not, you know, getting bottled up because again, you can imagine what that does year after year, decade after decade on your nervous system. And then your brain, again, interpreting threat and and having signaling, you know, that pain is pain is the kind of response to that being threatened. Another thing that really works is um, having an area that does tend to be chronically painful. So this could be your low back, it could be your knee, could be your shoulder, and attempt to make it feel different. And by and so one thing I'll do is I will tape, I will use KT tape, especially um, around the SI joint and the shoulder just having a different sensation. So yes, does the KT tape perhaps help with the shoulder positioning and give it more stability? Yes, you. it probably does a little bit of that through the brain's awareness of it. But what it's also doing is that the body can actually, that body part can feel something different. And that novelty is, it's kind of like shaking up, you know, just like the breath is shaking it up so all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I'm something else is happening. I, and, and so putting some kind of um, tape on there, some people do that 
automatically they know when they put like a knee brace on, all of a sudden they feel better. Now, maybe they feel better because the knee feels more stable and they therefore feel calmer and less worried and less anxious. Or maybe the brain is sensing something different. It's sensing from the tactile view, like what it feels like to be braced and have this bigger area of the body having some compression on it. So it is often when we think of like in the PT world of taping or bracing or splinting, even icing and heating, like the literature is so mixed on all of these things. And I think that if you do something that makes you feel in less pain, then do it. And it might there might not be any scientific reason except that your brain interpret that as a safer thing. So if you think every time after you run, ice your knees, and that works for you, that's fine. There's nothing, There's no, it's not like the ice is decreasing the inflammation or preventing an injury. But what it might be doing is it's preventing your brain on hyper-focusing on, you know, that tibial, tuberos- tibial tuberosity kind of area that typically might feel painful or something. That's just an example. So those are some really easy ways of changing the sensation so your brain's interpretation of sensation is different. Um, Just the other, like, I would say a week or two ago, I had this sensation. I'd never had it before. And it was like a sciatica thing. I had been sitting very strangely in my couch because my husband had put cushions up. And so I couldn't sit in my normal way, but I was you know, stubborn. I was just going to be like, okay. And these were outdoor cushions, so I couldn't move them easily. So I just crouched myself in this position and was doing some work. And when I got up, I felt fine, but all of a sudden I had this zing from my kind of right beneath my butt cheek. And I thought, and I've never had it. I was like, this is sciatica. And I was kind of happy that I felt it because I've had many people talk, talk about it. But then I became really interested, like, is that going to stay there? Is that going to stay there? And so for the next like 15 minutes, I would be doing something, but my my brain was still, my mind and my brain, right? So your brain is your thinking part and your brain is, I mean, my mind is my thinking part. My mind was still anticipating, like, when am I going to feel that zing again? And so I'm sure that had its own, you know, in the brain filtering of stuff, it had to go through that as well, that there was a little heightened anxiety. The point is, it kept coming back, and I was like, wow, that's weird. But I started tapping on my IT band, which is below that, just tapping on it. And sure enough, I would, I'd get that little zing, and I'd start tapping, and it would go away. Now, the tapping didn't make the zing go away. The tapping just bypassed some wiring in my brain that now became aware of the tapping and was not giving me the signal of this zing. And it was fascinating. It was like in real time, I was just doing what I instinctively thought might work and it did. And PS, you know, that went away. I never had that again, thank goodness. But the point is, um, we kind of know some of these things. So what are some other things? Like, you know, tapping, jiggling, using like a vibrating tool around the area that is supposed to be the area that you are having this chronic pain. They've, They've shown that things like, pressure. And I'm, it could be massage, but it could also just be like a, I put um, a sandbag on people's low back 
when they're lying on their stomach and the low back is actually the area that they're complaining about. Now I give them something on their stomach so that I'm keeping their spine neutral, but just the weight, putting the sandbag on the weight, again, it signals something different to the brain or the brain is all of a sudden interested in something else. There are, you know, you can meditate that can help with your relaxation. You can go and get in the bathtub and work on just relaxing in the bath and getting some feeling of floating. So the brain is, again, feeling different things. You can use all the great things like Tiger Balm and Ted's Brain Cream is amazing. And I can't say enough about it. I really, it's just, it's created by a neuroscientist. You have to listen to the podcast with him. It's amazing. But these things are amazing. And what Ted goes a step further into just not just having like a rub with menthol that kind of blocks the feeling because the sensation is just so tingly, but he also helps um, with kind of helping the rewiring of the, the, you know, the hair tangle of nerves or the way the brain is, has been interpreting pain. And it, it, he really, it helps with that as well. So you need to read more up on Ted's brain cream. It really works. Um, so those are some things. The other thing is move, all right? Move. And as you're moving, really think to yourself, I know it sounds hokey, positive thoughts. Oh my gosh, look at me move. Wow, this is great. Look at me hip hinge. Uh, I love how I'm holding myself together, you know, in my core. You want to move because pain inevitably limits movement. And that's where I would, I would just gently nudge people is you don't interpret the pain as a signal to not move because that's exactly what you, keep, what you shouldn't be doing because movement will be the most healing thing. Now, move in ways that are pleasant and that are not going to be causing more pain. And then there's this always this, as you're moving, you you have to be breathing and you have to believe that this is going to be great. If you were doing like I was doing with my little sciatic moment and I was waiting for that sensation to appear, that's not going to do you any good either. And But, you know, if you've had years of this, this is a lot. I'm just giving you some ideas. And on that vein, I really, really have noticed, and I, I talked about this again in that podcast with Yoga Girl, like, try and minimize how much you talk about pain. You are so much more than your experience of pain. And while it you want to, you know, not bury it because we don't want that to be it, that again, research has shown that by talking about it, you can actually worsen it. And conversely, by not talking about it, you might reduce it. And that is really powerful. Again, this isn't just a mind over matter thing, but it's bringing in all of the tools, the equipment, the potential and possibility to help you um, not be a victim of your experiences and your pain. And if you have had a lot of trauma, physical, emotional, whatever form, know that you need even more tools 
more help because your nervous system um, needs that extra help. And it could be, you know, a while for these things to improve, but don't give up, right? Because you have one body, you have one life, and you don't want to be living thinking that this is all you're going to experience because it's not. It can improve. And I really believe that. And I've seen it with so many people in all kinds of circumstances. So I hope this helped you understand a little bit more about how pain is interpreted. It is information. It is communication. And we can help the brain better process that information, not go into overdrive, maybe get a little bit confused with other things like movement or sensations, anything we can do, the heavy breathing and then the relaxed breathing. But whatever you do, I hope you believe in your heart that you do not deserve to be in pain and that it can be better. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.